I am encouraging people to vote, but I think it's got to be like vote plus. <laughs> and what's that plus? It's a couple of things. One, we need to recognize the level of disenfranchisement that has already occurred, particularly in our state, and it's happening across the country that prevents people from voting. So it's a weak message in my mind because it's not it's not acknowledging the complications that folks are facing and just executing that act. So really, our it needs to be vote plus like here are the steps to do it. And we're going to make sure you complete this whole process, whether it's, you know, mail-in voting. We saw this during the primary, um, where the boxes are going to be, whatever, right? Hey, everyone, it's Swathi. Thanks for listening to Fresh Off the Vote. We are a grassroots podcast with a mission to make politics exciting and accessible. Our team is 100% self-identified Asian American Pacific Islanders ready to make waves for the November 2020 election. We created the podcast as a home for conversations for AAPIs by AAPIs. Welcome to a bonus episode of Fresh Off the Vote. Earlier this week, we heard from Thunvi Kohli and Laita Pamirigantam, two South Asian women involved in the political landscape, and Ohio State Senator Tina Mara who all offered their perspectives on Kamala Harris's Indian-American, South Asian background. In this episode, we hope to unpack Kamala's half-Black identity by hearing from Morgan Harper, a grassroots candidate who ran for Congress in Ohio's 3rd District. Morgan and I will continue the conversation on representation politics and its nuances with a multiracial candidate, as well as understand how to stay inspired. Okay. Hello, Morgan. Thank you for joining Fresh Off the Vote's bonus episode. So Morgan, can you take some time to introduce yourself? So my name is Morgan Harper. I am from Columbus, Ohio, originally. I recently ran for Congress as a grassroots candidate. Um, But before that, I'm a lawyer and worked in public policy at Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in Washington and and a few other places. So uh, Kind of a long-ish career in, in the public sector and, uh, and still a lot more to come. Yeah, so I identify as Black. Um, I was actually born at Ohio State and given up for adoption. And so often when people are asking like, oh, well, you know, what are you or what's your ethnicity? It's, it's like, a, depends. Well, do you want like the quick answer? Or do you want the more complicated answer? So, you know, like technically, like my birth parents half Black, half White. Um, but I was adopted by a black family. And then my mom is actually from Trinidad. So she's kind of, you know, mixed as well. And I've had, you know, the experience of what it is to be black in Columbus, which especially in the 80s, there weren't a lot of nuances to that. I wanted to gather Morgan's thoughts and reactions on Kamala as the Democratic vice president nominee. Given that Morgan is also a black woman with experience in politics, did she feel a sense of sharedness? Well, you know, it's it's good in one way. I mean, as as another black woman, it's it's cool to see the you know that type of representation and have a black woman who's going to be on the the Democratic presidential ticket. Um, I'll say though, you know, just as a as a citizen, I'm much more focused on policy, and certainly as someone who's run for office. And so, you know, I I care about the representation, but I also am very very focused on you know, what are they going to stand for and what do they plan to do if they win? But I would say all of that is is contextualized within this larger narrative of, you know, we have one of the worst presidents in history right now, and we've, we've got to just get rid of him. So I, I certainly wish Kamala Harris and Joe Biden the best in that effort. And, you know, I'm doing what I can to support. 
Morgan explains that it's important to actually contextualize Kamala and her past as a prosecutor. People are entitled to their own views and prerogatives on how they view Kamala now based on her past. So she was um, beginning her career as a prosecutor before a lot of um, a lot of the changes we're seeing in different types of prosecutors being able to run and win. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, you know, that that is relevant. Um, but for a lot of people, and, and I'm just kind of now representing, I would say, like the range of, of views I've, I've heard. Um, but for a lot of people, like, you know, that it doesn't matter in a way, right? It's like, well, you were you were in charge uh, under a, a regime that incarcerated a lot of Black people, particularly Black men. And that's not okay, right? And and I've heard from folks in, in Columbus that are, you know, it's like, I'm not voting for somebody like that. Um, that they have similar views about Joe Biden and his role in, in federal legislation that created, um, or, you know, said to contribute to the, the mass incarceration problem. And, you know, I, I think that that is a very legitimate critique. Um, and any, anyone who's been in public office is responsible for their record. And if you continue to run for office and seek higher office, then folks are going to ask questions about what's come before and how it's going to inform your future, your future decisions. So, you know, that, that critique is healthy. Um, I, I completely understand where people are coming from and, and being critical of some of her policies around just incarcerating people by the very nature of being a prosecutor, but then also having, you know, some policies that were criminalizing truancy, for example, and, you know, threatening parents to potentially have to go to jail if their kids weren't going to school. That's not where a lot of people my age and, and much younger are at, the, but people have different points of view. So, I mean, I, I always come back to what's most important is like, one, we're, we're listening to what people's points of views are. Um, we are understanding how they might reach certain conclusions and, and then, you know, recognizing that people will vote accordingly and that is their prerogative. So um, it, it doesn't work necessarily to like try to shame people into agreeing with your perspective. Uh, we got to like, we got to hear where people are at and honor their experiences. And I agree with you in, in terms of one, no matter what, like if you're running for public office or you're choosing to kind of put yourself out there and, and be there in politics, people are going to hold you accountable. People are going to question your past and things like that. And that's just something that comes with the occupation. And I think that's important as well to hold our leaders accountable if they are representing us and making decisions to affect us as well. So I guess personally, do you feel conflicted or any sort of dilemma when it comes to voting, specifically with this situation with Kamala, as well as just in general? For this, for the presidential election coming yeah. up? Yeah, not really. Uh, you know, I was on a, a local um, political show this past week and this question came up and I, and I said there, I mean, for me, like there isn't really a choice right now. We've got a fascist, racist current president and then we have an alternative. And so of course, that I don't believe is inherently fascist or racist. So yeah. uh, I think we got to just like go with that alternative. Was it my like absolute number one yay go to choice? No, but it's not relevant at this point. And I'm gonna do what I can to make sure people vote. I mean, that's all that's all that we can do. And turnout's gonna be really important. So no, I'm not conflicted in that way. I mean, but where my excitement lies is with the policy. And that's where I just think generally, you know, what's cool about your generation, what's cool about, you know, the movement that's happening within the Democratic Party is people are getting more focused on policy and not so tied to an individual or a personality because 
I think we've seen, you know, even even those personalities, like take, you know, Obama, for example, that a lot of people were really into, someone I volunteered for. Um, I think when whenever you have that level of admiration for someone and then they do something that deviates from your perception of who they are, it, it can be quite crushing, but it's like, but they're just people and they're politicians and they've gotten elected to office and, and they're gonna they're gonna be weighing a lot of different factors at the, at this point. And it's our job to just continue to hold them accountable. I'm glad you brought up voting because I'd love to hear your thoughts about the effectiveness of voting as a form of civic engagement, especially thinking about people who might not be participating in other ways or are familiar with current policies. On social media especially, I've noticed that people have become a lot more vocal about voting, but it also seems like people are treating it like an end-all be-all solution to simply vote and consider that the extent of their engagement. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of that message. I mean, I, I am encouraging people to vote, but I think it's got to be like vote plus. <laughs> and what's that plus? It's a couple of things. One, we need to recognize the level of disenfranchisement that has already occurred, particularly in our state, and it's happening across the country that prevents people from voting. So it's a weak message in my mind because it's not, it's not acknowledging the complications that folks are facing and just executing that act. So really, our, it needs to be vote plus, like, here are the steps to do it, and we're going to make sure you complete this whole process, whether it's, you know, mail-in voting. We saw this during the primary, um, where the boxes are going to be whatever, right? But then also, it gets back to what we were just talking about with the policy. It's like, okay, but what are you voting for? And here, I would make perhaps a little bit of a distinction between, like, the presidential race that's happening right now, and then some of these down-ballot races that people tend not to focus as much attention on. But with a presidential, you know, it, and that's a, that is a personal view as to what you're voting for. You know, for me, like I said, it's really at this point, it's not a policy vote. It's kind of a vote for ending the reign of Donald Trump. <laughs> but, you know, in a, in a more functional moment or, or place for us as a society, and especially with some of these down ballot races, the why should be tied to a particular policy that you care about. And, and that's what we need to get people to think about. So. It's got to be like vote plus, plus making sure people understand the mechanics of actually voting and then also that they understand the policies and the power that this specific office candidate could have to influence their life. I think it's happening and especially with all the primaries that are happening. I mean, that is the, the purpose of a primary. If you have more than one person running from the same party, you're not choosing, oh, I just, I'm going to go with the Democrat. It's like, well, no, both people are Democrats. So now this is where we actually like delve into what do these people stand for? And so anyone, I don't know how closely, you know, your audience follows this, but it's like kind of controversial to be like challenging incumbent or as a Democrat running against another Democrat. And, and I do think that's changed too, because like that shouldn't be controversial. This is where we actually like dig in as a party and decide what do we stand for? But we've given up that phase of the process by just trying to get a Democrat on the ballot and never testing any of these primaries. The primaries are where that happens. And that's why more and more people should feel comfortable running and it shouldn't be considered controversial. Yeah. And I agree. I think primaries are a fantastic example of like where you really start to do your research because there you're actually forced to make a decision. So you can't just think you're picking the right choice based on your party affiliation. So great segue actually into the primaries. And I'd love to kind of pivot to your specific journey as well. So how has that journey been, you know, running for Congress as a black woman in a predominantly white field within, within politics? 
Yeah. I mean, it's, it's always relevant because especially when you're running to represent people, people want to know exactly who you are and what your experience has been. And will you understand what their experience has been to authentically represent them? So, you know, there's always a lot of questions. I would say for me, because, you know, I present in a more racially ambiguous way, then there's a, a whole additional layer of questions. <laughs> but, you know, in terms of like being in predominantly white spaces, that was kind of like my experience growing up in Columbus, especially the one, once I got a scholarship to go to Columbus Academy, a private school that was sort of at that time, like a, it had just transitioned from being an all boys school and was predominantly white. And I was the only black woman, only woman of color in my class for the entire time that I was there. So, you know, that primed me for a life that it turns out, though I didn't realize at the time, where I would be in predominantly white male dominated spaces, politics, policy, Washington. And, you know, it's good to, I suppose, get a handle on that early on in life. Um, <laughs> so the actual like exercise of running for office in that way in this and that element of it wasn't unique. I've kind of been like dealing with that for my entire life almost. But I will say, you know, there there is a lot of critique as uh, I would say a woman in particular, you know, running with just, you know, a lot of people questioning like, well, you know, do you, do you know what you're like, really know what you're talking about? Are you old enough to be doing this? And, and I do think there's a layer to being a black woman in particular that as well. People don't necessarily assume that you're qualified to do what you're doing or that you, you know, know what you're talking about. You have to really like prove yourself constantly and, and not necessarily, you know, giving that benefit. So that that was what it was, but we just, you know, continue to work through it. And, you know, especially when you're running for office, there's just like no room for sensitivity. You've got to really be tough. You toughen up along the way. So there, it is something that you can continue to improve upon. And I do think, in, you know, and since the race, like people reach out to me thinking about running for office or whatever. And the most important thing is just being really, really clear about who you are, what you stand for. And those types of critiques or questions don't throw you as much. Not to say they'll never, they won't throw you at all. And I certainly felt at some moments like, well, they're being really mean. It's <laughs> like, that's life. And, you know, you kind of, you got to keep it, keep it moving. But what I always come back to is like, this is who I am. This is why I'm doing this and I'll be okay. Yeah. And I was literally just about to ask you, I, I was like, has it ever, you know, phased you to the point where you're like, I don't want to do this, you know, like, I feel like that's a lot to kind of subject yourself to, especially, you know, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you have, you have moments like that, where kind of questions like, man, I could just be working like, a person, you know, and you know, not be out there so much. But um, I got on this journey pretty early on, because I just saw the inequality. And Columbus is the place that introduced me to this idea that, you know, just based on who you are, who your parents are, what neighborhood you're born into can somehow dictate what your life looks like or the level of opportunity. And I could not shake that. And so that's what keeps me out there is we haven't solved the problem yet. Right. So what am I going to do? Just like go pretend like the problem's not happening. That's not an option. We've got to yeah. keep pushing. And in fact, you know, especially what, what keeps me excited right now is people are waking up to this reality in a much broader way. Yeah. And it's, and it's so admirable to hear you kind of speak about it in a positive tone. Cause I feel like it's, it's so easy and feels kind of cathartic sometimes to just be cynical about it and be like, you know, nothing's going to change and, and things like that. But I think there is some sort of upside to seeing it in a positive light and seeing the fact that there is progress being made. And sometimes you need to remind yourself of that progress having been made to even continue making even more progress. So then how does that translate into the way we might feel represented by people of color in positions of power? 
Well, I think for people of color, I mean, hard to speak to generalize too much about that, but I would just say from my perspective, that that aspect of representation does really matter because, you know, and, and I would say it probably also is like really connected when, you know, in like certain immigrant communities where you feel like one of you has, has made it, you know? Um, and I think that has to deal with the struggle because you really know the struggle. I mean, I think that's why it must be like a magical journey for people, I, I would imagine, you know, in India to see someone whose mother came from a place that they know that then went on this magical journey to then be, you know, a vice presidential candidate in the United States um, as a woman. That is incredible. These are incredible stories. There is still a role for folks and almost like needing to look up to heroic type figures. Like that is maybe something ingrained in us as as humanity and politicians, you know, especially when they're tied to compelling personal stories can fill that role. Yeah. And I love that you say that. And it kind of, it fits perfectly into my next question about, you know, at the end of the day, does, does representation politics even matter? And what are, you know, what, what are the times when it does and when it feels like it does and what are the times it may not as much? It's almost like the voting thing. It's like, yes, plus. I would have like my most touching moments on the campaign were when people came up to me and were tying to some aspect of my personal story that I had shared that they identified with, that they, you know, had been in foster care, that they were also adopted, that they were a young black woman and seeing another young black woman run for something, put, you know, put herself out there, made them feel like they could also do something like this. So like, that is an example to me of like representation does matter and that ability to inspire people to think beyond whatever they thought their limitations were for themselves based on, you know, something about their experience. And that's something that I think I also identify with, you know, I, seeing somebody like Ayanna Presley get elected to Congress as a grassroots candidate was like, well, wow. Yeah. I mean, maybe I could go to Congress. You might need that like extra little nudge to really believe that you can when the images around you and you know in the US that it is usually like it's predominantly white, white male images of success are the things that you see. You might need that extra example to show you that you can. But <laughs> we also have to recognize the limitations of that, particularly in the political sector. And and this is something I do think we're seeing, you know, in the black community and in that there is this bit of a generational shift. Though it's almost it's I, I think it, I would actually argue it's multi-generational in recognizing that, wow, we've made a lot of advances uh, as a community since the civil rights era, for example. But one, racism continues. And two, not for all of us. And there's a class component to this as well. And the class component to me very much connects. I mean, the systemic racism can also connect to policy decisions, but the class component of why a lot of Black people in this country continue to disproportionately earn lower incomes, live in neighborhoods that are um, have, that have less resources, that are over-policed, that has to do with policy decisions and, and advances in, in Black representation have not solved for that. So we need to be thinking about, okay, well, what's our plan for this next generation? Yeah. And again, incredible segue into the next question that I was going to ask you is the fact that do you think representative politics is true activism? You know, do you find that it often does actually benefit the populations that they're seen to represent? You know, if we see Kamala Harris being um, elected, do are we going to see a change in outcomes for those, um, you know, under underserved and underprivileged neighborhoods and areas and with the over policing and things like that? So I, I guess that, you know, kind of feeds into my next 
question of can we even expect that kind of representative activism and that change from her if she's seen to represent those populations? We can only expect what we make them do, right? And so if, you know, everyone vote and let's say, okay, you know, Biden-Harris ticket wins in November, then we, if we all just go back to living our lives, no, no. <laughs> uh, inertia dominates and the status quo remains and nothing will change. And so, you know, we really have to view the vote as also one step of larger aspect of civic participation that does include activism. We have to make our representatives be activists. Some of them are already activists, right? And are elected, like Cori Bush, who just got elected in St. Louis. She is straight up activist. She was, you know, like in Ferguson protesting in the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement. Not every politician is like that, but they will respond to pressure. And pressure comes from, yes, voting of the threat of potentially being voted out of office, but also advocacy happening on the ground, protesting, social media posts. You know, change does not just come and it's got to be on like all fronts. So especially like with the protests in spring, I, it, it, one of the initial reactions is like, oh, well, Morgan, like, what's this all leading to? When will it stop? And it's like, well, hopefully never, actually, because this is what it takes to have an active democracy. And we've kind of been asleep at the wheel as a populace for basically 40 years. We've got to get back to it because that's how this system will begin to work for us is when we make it. Exactly. And we can't just be complacent. Even if the Biden-Harris ticket wins, we can't go back to complacency on November 4th, thinking we have the representation already. It's on us to push and get them to actually listen to us. So my next thought is about those grassroots organizers and activists. What do we say to those working on the ground who feel like they can't count on or rely on electoral politics? Yeah, I, well, I mean, there's a lot of different perspectives, I would say, on the ground and, and among the activist community. Some people I don't think want anything to do with Biden-Harris. And like I said, I mean, I hear that perspective. It's not where I'm at personally, but I totally hear that. I think, generally speaking, we, we've just got to like keep it all up, keep up all this activity. So like, I am totally here for all of the protests, all of the activism, that now we have people that are organizing protests about the lack of unemployment, insurance ongoing during COVID. It's all just got to keep, it's just got to keep going. And I'm excited in central Ohio because it does feel like we've really hit a tipping point in terms of the level of comfort that people are feeling around their activism and feeling empowered to start their own organizations, their own movements. And I just want to uplift all of it as much as possible and also help to translate some of that into like the specific policy ask of, of elected officials at different levels. So we're in a, a really historic time. And, you know, just given the audience for the podcast too, that is being led by a lot of young people. And, and that is really cool as well, because, you know, I used to say a lot during the campaign is like, yo, like I'm kind of offering myself as like a bridge to the revolution because, you know, I'm sort of like older millennial, millennial cusp, whatever. My mom's a older boomer. I understand that generation. We've had our own kind of experience and then also still young enough to identify with Gen Z and revolution's coming so I can be your bridge or you will just be, you know, taken over. And I think what we're seeing is like, it's all accelerating much more quickly than maybe we expected. And the revolution being to clarify people powered politics, that is the goal. And to then lead to outcomes that will truly improve the quality of people's lives in this country, regardless of the circumstances of your birth. 
That is such a good note to end on, I think. And it's like I had mentioned, I think what you did was provide a really positive lens on what feels like a very cynical, like it, it just, things just feel so crappy right now, you know? And, and I think seeing it in a positive light in terms of, you know, not being naive, but, you know, seeing it as like change can occur and we are starting to make that change. And I think one of the biggest worries I had too, was it felt like the Black Lives Matter movement. It, I feel like for so many people, it just, it was so short lived for them. You know, they went to one protest and they wake up the next day and they're like, Oh, what racism isn't solved from that one protest I went to, you know? So it's frustrating because you meet people who have been working their entire lives tirelessly. And it's unfortunate that we need to have, you know, these tragedies tokenized for people to even start caring when they've been going on for so long. So I think that was a worry that I had. And I think starting to realize that we did have some sort of ripple effects, you know, and that is only going to get bigger and stronger with things like these podcasts and when people are listening and actively doing things. So um, I think especially hearing it from a grassroots kind of, you know, you've been on the ground and working to kind of get your, make your way up there. So I think that's what's most inspiring of all. So yeah, it's so, so, so incredibly excited for to have heard you speak about this issue and I think I think the way you kind of unpacked a lot of those nuances and the identities that come with Kamala Harris's black background are so informative too and I think that's something that a lot of listeners might not have had have heard before either so yeah with that I want to thank you so so much for your words especially thanks for having me this was great I feel so incredibly inspired by Morgan It can feel frustrating, especially now more than ever, as though democracy is failing us. But to see the impact from this summer starting to have a ripple effect, to see the wheels turning and people starting to understand their potential as activists, is quite the motivation to keep working. From hearing from Thanvi, Laitha, and Senator Maharat to this great discussion with Morgan, I hope you've started to better understand the intricacies when it comes to identity politics and how representation can feel like activism, or not. While we can learn to love Kamala and celebrate her heritage and the representation we have, let's make sure that we also see beyond that and work to actively fight for tangible representation in policies as well. Thank you so much for tuning into this bonus episode of Fresh Off the Vote. Follow us on Instagram at Fresh Off the Vote. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. We upload every single Monday, so stay tuned. There's so much to cover during and up until November, but is there something you think we should talk about? Hit us up. We want to know. Also, you can donate to us on Buy Me A Coffee. Any amount helps and will be greatly appreciated. Our team can't thank you enough for your contribution and support. Thanks again, everybody. This is Swati signing off.